Welcome to Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. This is Alatar Shujin, your host and a chief medical resident here at Yukon. Before we start, a quick disclaimer. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. With that out of the way, I want to welcome you to this week's episode of Ambulatory Series. And this week, let's talk about polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS. We will go over epidemiology, diagnostic approaches, and treatment options. PCOS is a complex condition that is likely multifactorial in ideology. It presents with ovulatory and menstrual irregularity, subfertility or infertility, clinical hyperandrogenism, metabolic dysfunction, and or polycystic ovaries. It is recognized as one of the most common metabolic disorders in women, and the prevalence of PCOS is about 10% based on the Rotterdam criteria. Back in 1935, Stein and Leventhal first described polycystic ovaries and their association with amenorrhea. While their report did comment on some patterns of clinical androgenism, such as hirsutism or acne, they did not define them as central to the syndrome. Our understanding of PCOS has come a long way since then, so let's talk about diagnostic criteria and how to evaluate a patient for PCOS. Menstrual irregularity in patients with PCOS usually begins in the prepubertal period and menarche is frequently delayed. Oligomenorrhea is common, but some patients experience amenorrhea. What's interesting is that menses tend to become more regular by the age of 40. Most of your patients with PCOS will have both biochemical and clinical evidence of hyperandrogenemia, such as hirsutism, acne, male pattern hair loss, and or elevated serum androgen concentrations. It is important to remember, if your patient exhibits signs of severe androgen excess, such as deepening of the voice or clitoromegaly, PCOS is now much lower on your differential, and ovarian hyperthrocosis or androgen-secreting tumor need to be ruled out first. Some of the other clinical features include polycystic ovaries, which can be visualized on the transvaginal ultrasound, insulin resistance, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, sleep apnea, and mood disorders. When evaluating a patient with some of these clinical features, it is important to have a high index of suspicion for PCOS because these patients are at risk for complications. Many patients who are ultimately diagnosed with PCOS report poor diagnostic experience due to delays in being diagnosed and inadequate health information. One of the studies indicated that almost half of the patients diagnosed with PCOS saw three or more physicians before being diagnosed. So how do we improve that? Diagnosis of PCOS can be made by using Rotterdam criteria, which is based off of history and physical exam. There is a Ferriman-Galloway score that may help with assessment of hirsutism, but one of its limitations is the fact that hair growth varies greatly among different racial groups, which may deem it less reliable. We will come back to Rotterdam criteria in a little bit. Let's talk about biochemical testing first. 
Measurement of serum androgens, such as total testosterone, in patients with hyperandrogenic symptoms can be done. If, in addition to hyperandrogenic symptoms, patients also have oligomenorrhea, you would also want to add early morning 17-hydroxyprogesterone. Levels of early morning serum 17-hydroxyprogesterone help rule out non-classic congenital adrenal hyperplasia due to 21-hydroxylase deficiency. Non-classic congenital adrenal hyperplasia is less common than PCOS, but it is an important diagnosis to rule out because that patient's child would be at a risk for a more severe 21-hydroxylase deficiency. Again, keep in mind that if serum testosterone is greater than 150 micrograms per deciliter, look for most serious causes of elevated testosterone, such as ovarian and adrenal androgen-secreting tumors. Measurement of DHEA, or free testosterone, is not routinely recommended. Remember that if patient is already taking estrogen, progestin, oral contraceptives, metformin, or spironolactone, measuring serum androgens would not be helpful. In the past, LH-FSH ratio, over 2, was used as part of PCOS workup, but this was proven to be unreliable and is no longer used in clinical practice. If LH levels are taking around ovulation, they may be suppressed, falsely lowering the ratio. In any patient with oligomenorrhea, you want to measure HCG, TSH, and FSH. As we discussed, LH levels may be misleading, so they may not add clinical value. Next up is anti-Mullerian hormone. Its concentration may be normal or mildly elevated in patients with PCOS, but there is no international consensus on its clinical application. PCOS has polycystic ovary in its name, yet visualization of polycystic ovaries on transvaginal ultrasound is not necessary to make that diagnosis. If your patient had both oligomenorrhea, evidence of hyperandrogenism, and other causes have been ruled out, patient meets diagnostic criteria, and ultrasound is not needed. So let's recap Rotterdam criteria. Two out of three of the following criteria have to be met. 1. Oligomenorrhea and or anovulation. 2. Clinical and or biochemical signs of hyperandrogenism. And 3. Polycystic ovaries on transvaginal ultrasound. Now that we've gone over diagnostic criteria, let's move on to treatment options. The goal for PCOS therapy is to ameliorate hyperandrogenic features, reduce risk from underlying metabolic conditions, prevent endometrial hyperplasia and carcinoma in the setting of chronic anovulation, provide contraception for those not seeking pregnancy, and lastly, induce ovulation for those pursuing pregnancy. Menstrual dysfunction and endometrial protection can be achieved with estrogen, progestin, oral contraceptives. Daily exposure to progestin antagonizes the endometrial proliferative effects of estrogen. Combined oral contraception also provides protection against pregnancy, as patients who have unpredictable ovulation are at higher risk for unwanted pregnancy. Prior to starting combined oral contraceptives, make sure to rule out pregnancy. Interestingly, metformin also has a potential to restore menstrual regularity. 
the data suggests that metformin was able to restore menses in approximately 30-50% to 50 of women with PCOS. Because it does not provide endometrial protection, the same way combined oral contraceptives do, it is currently considered second line. There is a caveat to metformin use in PCOS patients, which we will discuss later. Combined oral contraceptives are also first line for androgen access manifestations. An antiandrogen such as spironolactone can be added after six months if cosmetic response is suboptimal. If use of combined oral contraceptives is contraindicated, spironolactone can be used, but bear in mind that an alternative contraception should be used regularly because spironolactone will prevent normal external genitalia development in a male fetus. Spironolactone is usually dosed at 50 to 100 mg BID. There are other antiandrogens that we haven't talked about yet. They are finasteride, which inhibits 5-alpha-reductase type 2, and detasteride, an inhibitor of both 5-alpha-reductase type 1 and 2. Similarly, these medications should never be used in a patient who is not using reliable contraception. Outside the U.S., cryptoterone acetate and fluoramide are also used, but fluoramide has potential for hepatotoxicity. Weight loss can restore ovulatory cycles and improve metabolic risks and remains the first-line therapy for most patients. Pioglitazone, similar to metformin, can reduce insulin levels in women with PCOS, but because it is less studied than metformin, has potential for weight gain and cardiovascular adverse events, experts currently do not recommend its use unless patient has diabetes. Dyslipidemia in patients with PCOS is treated similar to other patients with dyslipidemia. Exercise and weight loss are the first-line approaches, followed by pharmacotherapy if needed. Obstructive sleep apnea in patients with PCOS needs to be diagnosed timely and treated with CPAP. Non-alcoholic steatohepatitis seems to have higher prevalence in patients with PCOS. Weight loss and metformin are usually able to improve hepatic function in those patients. Importantly, PCOS patients have higher incidence of depression and anxiety compared to patients with similar BMI without PCOS. Anxiety and depression symptoms need to be recognized timely and treated appropriately. For patients with PCOS actively pursuing pregnancy, treatment focuses on ovulation induction. Weight loss is highly encouraged as even modest weight loss of 5-10% to of body weight showed reduction of serum androgens and resumption of ovulations. While there was a lot of enthusiasm around using metformin in PCOS patients in the past, current guidelines recommend against its routine use in obese patients with PCOS unless they have glucose intolerance and have failed lifestyle modifications. Metformin can be used in patients with glucose intolerance in combination with ovulation induction medications, but ovulation induction monotherapy was proven to be superior to metformin monotherapy in animal studies. Ovulation induction medications include letrozole, which is now first-line therapy, followed by clomiphene citrate. Both clomiphene citrate and metformin are less effective at ovulation induction when compared to letrozole. Another way to induce ovulation is exogenous gonadotropins, but there is a high risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome in patients with anovulatory infertility.
In the past, wet resection of the ovaries was the standard treatment for infertility in women with PCOS. This approach was abandoned primarily because of clomiphene efficacy and post-op adhesion seen with wet resection cases. For patients who failed letrozole or clomiphene citrate, laparoscopic ovarian drilling, also called ovarian diathermy or electrocautery, can be a second-line option for treatment. When you compare ovarian drilling to another second-line option of gonadotropin therapy, surgery reduces the risk of multiple gestations that is frequently seen with gonadotropin therapy. What's interesting is that ovarian drilling has been around for decades, but there is still no consensus on the number of punctures, energy source, and the dose, and whether both ovaries should be treated. Based on limited data, 3 to 6 punctures per ovary at 40 volts of coagulating current for 4 seconds per puncture is now considered acceptable. The theory behind ovarian drilling is that it likely reduces ovarian secretion of androgens and proteins, resulting in an increase in LH and FSH, making an ovary more responsive to endogenous gonadotropins. Following the procedure, ovulation resumes in approximately 80% of patients. If all of the above steps failed, next step would be in vitro fertilization or IVF, which is beyond the scope of our discussion for today. To wrap up today's episode, let's go to our takeaway points. PCOS is a complex condition and is quite common with prevalence of about 10%. Its presenting symptoms are ovulatory and menstrual irregularity, subfertility or infertility, clinical hyperandrogenism, metabolic dysfunction, and or polycystic ovaries. Since the condition was first described in 1935, a lot has changed in our understanding of the pathophysiology. Diagnosis of PCOS can be made by Rotterdam criteria. Two out of three of the following criteria have to be met. One, oligomenorrhea and or anovulation. Two, clinical and or biochemical signs of hyperandrogenism. Three, polycystic ovaries on transvaginal ultrasound. Important takeaway here is that you don't have to visualize polycystic ovaries to make the diagnosis. We no longer use LH-FSH ratio in working up PCOS. If patient has hyperandrogenic features, you can order a total testosterone. In cases where patient has virilization and severely elevated testosterone, other causes need to be investigated first. If your patient also has oligomenorrhea, you should add an early morning 17-hydroxyprogesterone to rule out non-classic congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Measurements of DHEA or free testosterone are not routinely recommended. You can consider adding HCG, TSH, FSH to your lab work. Treatment options will vary based on whether or not the patient is pursuing pregnancy. If pregnancy is not desired, combined oral contraceptives should be prescribed for menstrual dysfunction, endometrial protection, and contraception. Metformin can be added if patient has glucose intolerance. Spironolactone or other antiandrogen medications can be added for androgen access manifestations if combined oral contraceptives are not enough. Weight loss is another key component of PCOS management. Pay close attention to signs of depression and anxiety in your patients with PCOS. If your patients desire pregnancy, there are ovulation induction medications that can be tried first, 
followed by laparoscopic surgery or exogenous gonadotropins. If all of those steps fail, patients should be referred to IVF for further options. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in our next episode.